The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove, the magazine's deputy editor. And I'm Rob Attar, features editor. This is our April 2010 podcast. We've got two guests on our podcast this month. And Charles Neils, and he again, he takes off his hat, so he, he rides bareheaded into the city of London. There's no sort of triumphant, glorious uh, return. He's very sort of simple and direct. That was Jenny Uglow on the return from exile of the man who would soon be crowned as Charles II in the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Had a very narrow escape from an explosion when he was travelling to the West Indies on board the steamship. In the hold of, of the steamship, um, these gases had built up because they were transporting these bananas or something, and then it had sort of exploded. So he just had this very narrow escape, which he then um, reported back on in the Cocoa's magazine. And that was Emma Robertson on the dangers of travelling out to the British Empire's cocoa plantations in the early 20th century. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. Now, in a moment, we'll hear about Charles II. But first, our latest figures tell us that typically more than 200,000 people download our podcast each month. These listeners are scattered far and wide around the world. Now, some may be subscribers who have their copy of BBC History magazine sent overseas, but we thought that many more may never have seen a copy of the magazine. So we decided to put together a special digital sample on our website, which you'll be able to see wherever you are in the world. It's free, and all you need to do is go to our website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com and then click on the link to our digital issue. We hope you enjoy it. And now, to our first podcast guest. Our first interview is with historian Jenny Uglow. In 1649, King Charles I was executed and the monarchy was abolished. However, in 1660, Charles II made a return from exile and reclaimed the thrones of England, Scotland and Ireland. In the current issue of the magazine, we mark the 350th anniversary of the restoration of the monarchy. BBC History magazine editor Dave Musgrove asked Jenny to talk him through the early days of the reign of Charles II. Um, The first thing we need to do is to set the scene a bit. So um, we're talking about the restoration, and the situation is is that... uh, Charles, the son of Charles I, has been exiled as a result of the, of the parliamentary victory in the civil wars. For about a decade, he's been on the continent. We need to find out what's happening there. So, so Jen, can you just explain what's happening in 1660 that, that means that Charles comes back to Britain? Charles had been in exile and had been trying to get alliances and to help him get back on the throne. Um, but really, nothing... Uh, happened, nothing looked possible until the death of Cromwell, and that's uh, September 1658. Um, And after that, uh, the dissatisfaction in Britain with Cromwell's son who succeeded him and with the really with the endless wrangling and disputes between Parliament and the new model army um, made people long for a change, which is the oldest 
uh, election slogan, I mm. gather. <laughs> um, and the change in this case would be or could be the return of the king. But it's not until... January 1660, when General Monk, who was commanding the Scottish army in Scotland, marches his troops down to London. And he's the one really powerful uh, man who can swing things. And for several weeks, nobody knows which way Monk is going to go, though on his way down, he's petitioned by people over and over saying, call a new parliament, because a new parliament would call for the return of the king. Um, and in the end, while Charles had rushed back from the Spanish border where he was um, engaged in yet more dealings, rushed back to Brussels. Um, and in the end, it was clear that Monk was going to support Charles. And the old parliament was indeed dissolved on the 19th of March and they waited for a new parliament to be called. And at the same time, uh, General Monk through an intermediary, sent messages to Charles, uh, effectively saying, this is the offer. If you promise these things, I think I can swing it with Parliament. Charles replied, uh, absolutely agreeing, and also wrote to the House of Commons saying, "I, you know, it would be excellent for the king to work with Parliament. And he then, 4th of April, issued this declaration from Breda uh, in the Low Countries, uh, and um, that declaration made several promises which Parliament immediately accepted and voted for his return. So it's a very, very hectic time on both sides of the English Channel. Mm. And without General Monk, would would Charles have ever come back? Do you think, was he the pivotal figure in, 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 in allowing the King to come yes, back? Yes, he really is a pivotal figure. I mean, it's a, that is such a fascinating question. It's one of the big what-ifs. I think he probably would but it's hard to see who apart from Monk actually had the authority there's a I think a very interesting time which I'd love people to write about when Monk arrives in London he brings his troops ostensibly simply to ask for their pay but actually when he gets to London the city of London welcome him with these great banquets and things and and it's quite clear I think that he could have decided himself to be the next Cromwell Mm. and to be that strong figure, yeah. uh, but but he didn't. Um, so I think Charles would have returned. I think that the mood uh, in Britain had turned so against the sort of end of the Commonwealth, the chaotic legislation, the high taxes. They're fed up with the army always being billeted on them. They're fed up with the disputes between the sects because the majority of the British people actually didn't belong to... Um, sort of extremely austere Puritan sex. So I, I think that Charles would have come back, but it would have taken longer. So do you think it was, was it, was it the will of the people that he came back? Did, did the mass of, of, of the population want, um, want a, a royal head back on the throne again? Yes, it does appear so. Um, it, certainly there were a lot of good stout old republicans well, like john milton for example and a lot of the soldiers in the new model army and that's over 40,000 men um and a lot of workers who who didn't want the king back who despaired all their dreams of a republic or of a uh, you know kingdom of the saints they could see absolutely vanishing but they are a minority and i i think you see this by the 
way that people um, come forward with these petitions for the new parliament. And also the City of London, um, which had been behind uh, parliament during the civil wars, very much so, uh, the mood there had changed and all the apprentices are coming out on the streets. Uh, the, the remains of the parliament was called the rump parliament because it was the rump that had existed so long since 1649 after it was purged by the Puritans. Um, and and they're all, all the apprentices are now out on the on, on the streets shouting about getting rid of the rump parliament and bringing back the king. Mm. And how important was Charles himself in this do you think as a as a personality as a figure was did his personal popularity sway people he's very clever about that after all not many people could have known what he was like and if they had an image of kingship it was his father Charles I he was extremely remote from the people very formal and and who was widely seen to be denying the people their rights and parliament their rights even though his death had made him into a martyr so there's a sort of strange legacy of what a king might be um but uh, Charles Charles's personality really did count those years in exile when he had to go from court to court, from France to Cologne to Brussels, um, had made him quite sort of canny and quite ruthless, but ruthless underneath a very, very easy, engaging manner. He's very tall, he's good-looking, he's known to be athletic. So as soon as the chance of him coming back becomes real there's a great big um spin on on actually the image of charles uh, himself you know here is this young virile uh, king who's uh, even his womanizing at that point is quite good because it, it's as if he's going to make the country young and fertile again um and so i think yes the the character of charles in that he plays very cleverly with uh, Monk, he takes the advice of many people. He makes certain to be sure that he looks like a sober king. He agrees to the demands while, I think, you know, hoping to get back and make his own way. So his personality, but also his image, both contribute to the ease of his return. And when he does get back, so he he comes over um, from the Low Countries, comes over in his ship, and he gets to Dover, and there's crowds at, uh, on the cliffs of Dover, sort of cheering him in. Does he then make himself accessible to the people? Did he does he try and make himself into a, a sort of a people's prince? Yeah, completely. Um, he yes, absolutely the people's prince. You know, the the mayor of Dover gives him a Bible, and Charles said, "This is the one you know thing that I have always loved." Um, he walks uh, among the people. He stays in Canterbury for a couple of days, um, and he has his first Privy Council meetings in the cathedral, which had been much knocked about during the Civil War. So it's like a regeneration. Um, everybody flocks to him. And the um, Spanish uh, ambassador was actually sort of horrified uh, to see this young king uh, shaking hands with everybody and taking his hat, doffing his hat, his great hat doffer, Charles, um, so that it's smiling. And he, he had that kind of art of... Um, it's a natural charm, I think. You know, when he's talking to people 
however lowly, he makes them feel like the most important people, the one person he's really wanted to talk to. So he wins hearts in that way. Um, all the way in his great sort of ride up to London, uh, people rush from the fields to see him, uh, girls dance, you know, flowers are thrown. It's a great big theatrical thing, and he plays it completely to the full. And when he reaches London, uh, St George's Fields, before uh, crossing actually into the city, um, again, the Lord Mayor comes out and offers him the sword of the city, and Charles kneels, and he again, he takes off his hat, so he, he rides bareheaded, into the city of London. There's no sort of triumphant, glorious uh, uh, return. He's 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 very sort of simple and direct. And at Whitehall, once he's established in Whitehall, um, everybody can come in. It's one of the extraordinary things. Again, foreign observers couldn't believe that you could have a royal palace where actually people it, it was sort of public right away. You know, people could walk in, and if not, actually go to the inner sanctum. They could be in the same place as the king. Was this was this completely revolutionary in terms of, of access to royalty? Had had any other king or queen in in, in England or, or, or Britain before that been so open to to their public? No, it is new. Uh, I think um, uh, you know previous uh, monarchs had um, pl- sort of played with access, and there are. are particular sorts of ceremonies that Charles himself takes up, like touching for the king's evil, which is where uh, it was thought that scrofula could be cured by the touch of the royal hand. And that allowed the ordinary people to come to them. But it was very, very firmly policed. Mm. Um, what Charles does, which is new, um, is is actually to walk out um, among his people. Um, St. James's Park, which is a royal park but open to the uh, public he walks there with his coaches and and his dogs and and people literally come up and and touch him as he's walking and that i think is completely new similarly with the theater which is still sort of exclusive it's the city and the court but when he goes to the theater he's one of the audience you know everybody watches him as much as they do the play and that's very new so was was that the, the precursor to the royal walkabout we have today then Yes. <laughs> and I think later in the reign, when things aren't going quite his way, he does withdraw. Um, as I said, there are these ceremonies which made the monarch public, one of which is dining in public. He, the poor king or and queen used to have to sort of dine in, in state, and people flock into uh, the banqueting hall at Whitehall to, to actually see them. And Charles was so popular, they had to have a sort of rope to stop crowds rushing up to see him um, and he does stop that at a certain point but it, even little things like he's very athletic um, he loves tennis um, he plays tennis in the uh, courts at, at Whitehall people come in and stand in the gallery and watch him or he plays Mall in what of course is now Mall in, in the park um, so he's, he's on display, he knows he's on display and how much of a honeymoon period does he get then? How, 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 when, when do the people begin to tire of this, of this public image? Yeah, well, not long. Um, it, it, but it's not the people who... The people don't tire straight away. And uh, it's a measure of Charles's charm that even when 
the people are absolutely fed up with the government, uh, as in 1667, when the war against the Dutch has gone so wrong and the royal flagship has been captured. It's the ki the king's ministers they turn on. They say, oh, you know, it can't be Charles, he's been misled. Or, but then they begin to attack the court uh, because um, the news of uh, the womanising, the mistresses, the gambling, I think is getting out. But but to begin with, it isn't the uh, mass of the people who uh, turn quickly against him. What he finds is he has a tremendous difficulty, not with the old parliamentarians, because he's been very, very careful, clever to give them good jobs and keep them on side, mm. but with his own royalist supporters who feel that they've been loyal all those years of exile and what can they see? They can see their opponents being given positions of power. Um, they haven't managed to get their estates back. Um, they, the king is reluctant, as far as they can see, to hunt down uh, and punish um, even the regicides, the men who signed his father's death warrant, uh, let alone their opponents. He has a big battle um, with his own supporters who remain... Um, far more royalist if you can use that word loosely or reactionary than Charles himself. Okay and, and finally then just one, one more point is um, how far did do you think Charles himself went in in re-establishing and cementing the idea of of, of, of monarchy and, and a king in in uh, uh, in the country again? Was were there moments when it could have gone back and, and the republic could have could have returned? Do you think was or was it once he'd come back it was that was it? You know the, the king was back and and that was forevermore. Um, there were wobbles. Um, there's and qu and quite early on um, in the. 1662, 3, 4, when a war with the Dutch skirmishes, not officially at war, technically at war with the Dutch, but a lot of skirmishes are going on and the merchants are saying, look, our trade actually hasn't got any better. Um, and the uh, sort of prelates are pushing through um, new repressive laws against um, dissenters and so on. That those two combine, and um, Peeps, for example, talks to people, and he realises an awful lot of people in the city are saying, oh, well, Cromwell's days weren't that bad, you know, and you know, maybe that's what we need, maybe this was a terrible mistake. Um, but but it's short-lived, and, and uh, really it's because uh, the, the actual sort of strength, particularly the military strength of um, the dissenters and the republicans was very small charles's own government overestimated they were always frightened of plots but actually it was too small and the combination of a lack of any really organized um opposition or republican opposition and the way that Char charles himself manipulated um, image and, of the king and gave it a new glamour, something that people warmed to. Um, those two, I think, made it pretty sure that the monarchy was back, uh, if not forever, at least for a very long time. Many thanks, Jenny. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. 
Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. That was Jenny Uglow. You can read her full feature in the April issue of the magazine. Her book, entitled A Gambling Man, is published by Faber. And so, on to our second interview. Did you give or receive Easter eggs this year? If so, did you stop to think where your chocolate came from or about the cocoa plantation workers overseas who produced it? Someone who has done just that is Dr Emma Robertson, whose recent book examines the dynamics of gender, race and empire which have structured the cocoa supply chain in the past. At the heart of the story are the lives of women workers at two key sites, the cocoa farms in Britain's colonies and the confectionery factories in Britain. I spoke to Dr Robertson earlier. So Emma, perhaps you could start off by telling us a bit about your book. Yeah, so um, it's just just come out recently. It's called uh, Chocolate, Women and Empire. And it's really looking at um, tracing the production and the consumption as well of of chocolate, really, particularly by the Rancher firm, which is based in York, um, and looking at how that depended on relationships, really, between Britain and the colonies in terms of where cocoa was coming from. And I've really tried to focus on women's lives and how women are involved at every stage of, of of the chocolate industry, really, starting out with how they get represented in advertising and then looking at women farming cocoa and finally looking at women working in the chocolate factories in, in Britain and using all the histories to find out, you know, what that, was, what that was like, really, how they felt about working in the industry. I see, and I believe this was partly inspired by a connection with your own family's history in York. Yeah, it, it sort of all started out because um, I grew up in the city of York and Roundtree's was always a familiar name to me. I went to you know, Roundtree Park and I went to Joseph Roundtree School eventually and I always remember that my gran always had supplies of waste chocolate that she got from when she was working at, at Roundtree's. So she used to get Kit Kats and Smarties and so I was really sort of sort of started to think about, you know, all, all the family members that had worked at the Rantie factory, grands and mothers, and my mother would work there for a short time, and my aunties would work there, and so it was just the chocolate industry is such a big thing in York, and so many family connections, that that's what started me really with the project, I just wanted to find out a bit more about that, and about their lives really. So, moving on to the feature that you've written for this month's issue of BBC History magazine, you examine the Cocoa Works magazine, which was an in-house journal launched um, in 1902 to keep the uh, Roundtree workers in York up to date with uh, what was going on in the company. Now, it also contained accounts by company representatives of of their visits to the cocoa plantations overseas. Tell us about some of the adventures they had when they went overseas. Well, I think the one that first sort of caught my eye was was one of the really first, I think it was the first issue of the Cocoa Works magazine in 1902. Um, and John Wilhelm Rountree, who was the son of Joseph Rountree, who founded the, the Rountree, one of the founders of the Rountree firm, um, was talking about how he just had a very narrow escape from the from an explosion when he was travelling to the West Indies on board the steamship. Um, and I think in the hold of, of the steamship, um, these gases had built up because they were transporting these bananas or something, and then it had sort of exploded. So he just had this very narrow escape, which he then um, reported back on in the Cocoa's magazine. Um, luckily, it's, it's sort of safely arrived on the on the firm's plantations in the West Indies there. And I think there's just a few of those 
the reports that come back, you sort of sense that they're a little bit, maybe frightened a little bit, worried about arriving in some of these exotic places to them. And one of the guys in the 1920s was arriving in West Africa and he sort of took jokes about, he, he thought he might become uh, the victim of a cannibal feast and uh, sort of those sort of fears as a, you know, they feel like they're really having these adventures sort of grab my attention, really. I see, because it's very much overseas is seen as something um, slightly dangerous, rather exotic, and it's interesting the sort of attitudes that come across to to those other countries and, and to the workers over there. They're sort of very much of their time, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think even, you know, from a, from a 21st century perspective, looking back, the language is obviously very much of its time. And they're fascinated by these sort of exotic people that they see, particularly um, early on when they're farming much of their cocoa in the West Indies, and they talk about the coolie labourers, and then compare them with the, the black West Indians, and they kind of set, set up these photographs and ask the reader of the Cocoa It's magazine to sort of compare the different features of them. So they do see them as, as very exotic and different, even though I think Roundtree's and Cadbury's and other firms were sort of concerned with the welfare of their workers on the plantations. The attitudes are still very much, as you say, of the time um, and this does change over time as well because the Cocoa Works magazine goes quite late on you do see a sort of shift as they have to be increasingly you know the empire sort of finishes and they have to work much more cooperatively with them with workers and, and the attitudes do change correspondingly as, as time as time goes mm, on indeed and you you paint a picture very much of this factory in york you know at the center of a web that is the british empire and the people very much encouraged to think of themselves as part of part of the empire what do these accounts tell us about the relationship between the workers in britain and those on its plantations overseas unfortunately we don't have a lot about the, the attitudes of the people that that did read the magazine it's sort of hard to get to but i think you do get a sense of um that they were you know the way in which they read these articles kind of fascinated by the people that they're seeing and also that they have these objects that come back from the West Indies and West Africa that get displayed in the factory. And I sort of think it gives you a sense of the fact that people in York might be sort of fascinated by these exotic workers who, you know, who are so distant from them, but so important to their everyday work. You know, the cocoa is coming in every day for them to work with. And there's a nice sort of little bits in Cadbury's in their magazine. They have um, a picture from quite early on in the 20th century of a young woman worker who's dressed up as, one of the cocoa plantation workers from the West Indies. And I think that gives a real nice insight into, yeah, how they were sort of fascinated by this as well. Mm. And you describe a little sort of like a mini museum that they had in the canteen of exotic objects, like a baby crocodile and all that sort of thing, um, which was which was quite sweet. Um, but actually, you you I think you mentioned at one point that some of these uh, workers from overseas did come over to um, to the factory for a visit. Yeah, that's. I think it does um, increasingly as. Is the empire's changing, and when um, ranchers start to buy their cocoa more and more from West Africa, from independent farmers, there seems to be a bit more of a sort of um, a different kind of relationship. And you do have West African representatives coming over to York. Um, and there's a nice example from the late 1930s when um, one of the allocators from Nigeria comes over and he's he's greeted by some the, the workers on the shop floor singing to him, and the, the girls on the shop floor actually singing. So that you have. Yeah, you have that relationship, you know, with actually seeing people coming over from the cocoa industry and and watching them at their work and then kind of performing this song for them. So that was a nice moment as well where, you know, they seem to be so distant from cocoa production, but sometimes the factory becomes a space where 
Makoto producers of farm that does get, come in contact with manufacturers, women workers, men workers on the on the shop floor. Yeah, yeah making it making it making it real, really. This relationship that they yes. yeah, I think so. And I think the, you know, although there's a sense that perhaps you know ordinary York workers aren't that concerned with empire. When I've talked to people, they do remember seeing displays on the in the factory corridors about where the cocoa was coming from in, in the 20th century. So you know, they do have an awareness, and, and ranchers are keen to instill that when they first start work. In the factory, they, they have a little lecture about where the cocoa is coming from and this kind of thing. So actually, the concerns make to sort of give them that sense of being part, as you say, of a, of a global industry. Just to sum up, um, I wonder if you could tell us what do you think the Cocoa Works magazine can tell us about um, attitudes at the time of the British Empire? Well, I think the Cocoa Works magazine, because it, it runs for such a long time, it sort of does help you to see, I think, the changing attitude from quite perhaps sort of condescending attitude early on of these foreign exotic workers to an increasingly sense that this is sort of having to cooperate and although trying to keep round very much at the centre of, of, the, of the chocolate industry, keeping the power there, that there is a need to have this more cooperative relationship with, with farmers in Nigeria and Ghana who are you know, going to be independent from the British Empire. But I think what it, what it really revealed to me was just that the way in which the empire isn't just something that's sort of out in the colonies, and it's, and it's not just about the relationship with London, the kind of capital of empire, that attitude to empire, the sort of awareness of empire is very much in smaller northern cities and, you know, different cities around, around the country, that something like the chocolate industry just really does connect somewhere like York with the empire, with, with the colonies overseas. And that was Dr Emma Robertson, who is lecturer in history at Sheffield Hallam University. Her book, Chocolate, Women and Empire, A Social and Cultural History, is published by Manchester University Press. You can read her feature in the current issue of the magazine. BBC History magazine is published each month in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket, or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on the website. Now, as we mentioned earlier, 200,000 people around the world listen to this podcast from BBC History magazine, and we thought that many of these may never even have seen a copy of the magazine. If you're one of those and would like to see what it's all about, then do check out the special free digital issue that we've put on our website especially for you. That's at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. Have a look around and let us know what you think. Well, that's it for our April 2010 podcast. We'd like to thank this month's guest historians, Jenny Uglow and Emma Robertson, and our podcast engineer, Mr Dave Gibson. Look out for another BBC History magazine podcast next month. <laughs>